We're looking at a new series beginning today on worship. And today's message, we want to deal with the truth of worship God alone. And if you look at your bulletin and outline, we're going to define the terms first. We use the terms, but do we know what they mean? What does it mean when we say, worship God? What is worship? You're sitting in this sanctuary this morning in what we call the worship service. But does that mean there is no worship of God when we meet in the fellowship hall tonight for our study in the Gospel of John? That's a good question. We call certain kinds of music worship hymns. Does that mean that there are hymns we sing which are not to be considered worship? Well, we'll consider some of these things in the future. The word worship, whether found in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament books of the Bible or in the Greek text found in the New Testament books of the Bible, mean essentially the same thing. The Hebrew word for worship is first found in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac unto God on a specific mountain, Mount Moriah, where eventually Jerusalem was built. To his servants, Abraham gave instructions, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy, Isaac, go over there, We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Genesis 22 and verse 5. The word is Shabbat, which doesn't mean much to you, but it means to bow down, to prostrate oneself before a superior, to stoop or fall down in homage to another. In this case, to bow down to God, right? To do as God had instructed. And it's not just, here's the important thing, it's not just a physical posture thing, but the idea of bowing down the heart, the mind, in obedience to the one that is being honored. In the film, Anna and the King, Anna, played by Jodie Foster, got herself in trouble with the officials of Siam because she did not follow the protocol of bowing low before the king in his presence. Instead, she stood tall. The king excused her indiscretion as a newcomer to Siam, but he worked it out saying, well, as long as her head did not rise above his head, even when she was standing, then she could stand. Now, in this film, the bowing low was not considered worship. He was a Buddhist, so that's how he worshipped. But it carried the idea of respect. It carried the idea of honor to the leader of the country, in this case, the king of Siam. When the subject is none other than God himself, the creator of every man, woman, and child, respect and honor goes without saying, but now now the added dimension of worship is added 
which, as noted, is bowing down as an inferior to the supreme superior. I mean, there are earthly kings and earthly monarchs, but then there is the king of kings and the lord of lords. If we, as mere creatures, hold our heads high in the presence of God, It is an affrontery to his majesty and his deity, which is punishable by death. Now some have the notion that such was the case in Old Testament days when God was viewed as austere and remote and and, um, uh, over his creation as Lord. But when we come... To the New Testament, things have mellowed in our day, things have softened, so that God is no longer seen as separate from his creation. And so people take a more, can I say, a more relaxed view of God, even daring to address God as the man upstairs, you've all heard of that, in our day it was Big Daddy in the Sky, or other equally irreverent epithets said of God. The expression familiarity breeds contempt becomes very real here because if God can be addressed in irreverent terms, then we may also approach him in profane ways without fear. It's like reducing God to our status. And if we reduce God to our status, then we can treat him. Oh, buddy, old pal, how you doing? You know, kind of that attitude. And I would say that none of that is true. None of it is true. God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And one of the attributes of God is that he is immutable. And that's just a big word for saying that God does not change. That means he doesn't change his mind. Why should he? He's perfect in all of his decisions. But more importantly, he does not change in his character. Everything you find in the Old Testament is found in the New Testament when said about God. So, that brings us to the New Testament word for worship. And that is first used in Matthew 2, verse 2. And you know this story very well, where the Magi of the East inquired of Herod, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. First time it's found in the New Testament. The word in Greek is proskuneo, from which we get prostrate. Prostrate. Among the Orientals, I'm reading from the lexicon now, among the Orientals, especially of the Persians, it means to fall down upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. I'm sure you have all seen this. People in Oriental cultures, when they worship, Islam, when it worships, when Muslims worship, they bow down and put their head on the floor. In reverence. In the New Testament, New Testament usage, it means kneeling or prostration to do homage to one or make obeisance 
whether in order to express respect or to make supplication. So if you've got a request, if you're coming before somebody that can grant that request, or someone that is superior to you, you bow down. Now this is so un-American to us. We are the Jody Foster people. We are Anna. We are going to stand strong. And we're told, you can do it, you can do it. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't. Stand up for yourself. Stand up. Don't give in. But when we come to the scriptural words that are used for worship, we see that the New Testament word is essentially the same idea as the Hebrew word of the Old Testament. The whole idea is one of subservience, approaching God in such a way that you recognize that God is not your equal. No, he is above you, not just spatially, that is in the heavens, but superior in every way. The psalmist words it this way. Know that the Lord is God. It's an interesting way to say that, because we use the word Lord for God. But he's saying, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Psalm 100, verse 3, verse 4. You see, you don't come into the king's presence just skipping and hopping. How you doing, big daddy? How's things with you? You don't come that way. You come into his courts in an honorable way. And with praise. And tantamount to this is that any form of arrogance, any form of self-assertiveness of, or disobedience to God shows not only disrespect, but irreverence and effrontery that God does not take lightly. When Israel, think about this, God's own chosen people, whom he rescued from the oppression of Egyptian bondage when they followed Moses through the Red Sea en route to the Promised Land. It wasn't very long before they began to dig in their heels and protest to God about everything from the manna that he provided from heaven for them to eat to the lack of meat, not enough water, the length of the journey, the lack of no visible symbol that would represent God, and so on, so on, so on, so on. They even planned at one point, I don't know if you remember this, to attempt a coup, kill Moses, and return to Egypt, of all things. And so we read in Numbers 14, verse 22, God says, Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me, and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever enter it. Numbers 14, 22, 23. Does that give you an idea? Now, God went through all that trouble. I say trouble, that's just my word of it. But all that energy and, and 
to bring them out of Egypt, sending Moses, training Moses for 80 years and himself to send him back, lead them right up to the door of the promised land, and that's where they pose the coup, and we'll kill Moses and go back, because the report came back, you know, guys, there's giants in that land in there, and, I don't, and, they, and their cities are big, and they're fortified, and I don't know that we can do this. And they didn't trust God, and it angered God. And, and not only that, but God says, you know, you've done this ten times to me since I got you out of Egypt. So guess what? None of you are going to go into the land. The basic problem for Israel is the same with people in our day. Moses put it this way. Jeshurun, which is an old name for Jerusalem. Jeshurun, and it stands for Israel, grew fat and kicked. Notice how he words this. This is very interesting. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him. He rejected the rock, his Savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God. Gods they had not known. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered over his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. Deuteronomy 32, verse 15 through 20. That's said to Israel, his people. And the patent phrase, the patent phrase that God used of Israel is this, stiff-necked and rebellious. Let me read some of these scriptures for you. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Exodus 32, verse 9. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Exodus 33, verse 3. And two verses later, For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. Exodus 33, and verse 5. Or again, O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us, Moses is pleading here. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Exodus 34 and verse 9. Good old Moses, boy, I tell you, what a prayer warrior he was praying for and interceding for Israel. Or again, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness, says Moses, that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. He says that to the new generation. Once again, And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9, 
verse 13. The remedy is given in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts. Cut that fleshly attitude out of your heart. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The problem, you see, is in their hearts. It's in their hearts. They prefer, prefer ruling over themselves, even though the decisions they make are always sinful, always wicked, and always lead to trouble in their lives. But there they stand, daring God to bend them, daring God to make them worshipers as they should be if their hearts were right with God. Now, that is the general phraseology that God uses of his people in the Old Testament. Stiff-necked, rebellious. Now, compare all this with what Paul wrote to the Gentiles of Rome. Here he writes, now we're talking Gentiles, right? We're talking us. Not Jews, us. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath when his, God's righteous judgment, will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. What is that? Same problem. Same obstinance. That's the problem. What is it about human nature that makes stubbornness almost an art form that everyone adores and refuses to relinquish? God said through his prophet Samuel, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft? That sounds devil-like, right? Demon-like. Hmm, oh, okay. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Idolatry. Oh, we got witchcraft and idols. Idle concepts of God. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. That was said of Saul when he disobeyed God. The key here is that there's a lot of self-worship in stubborn people. In this case, Saul as they follow the temperament of the king of stubborn, the devil himself. That's where it originates. Witchcraft, demons, stubborn, idols. That brings us then to Jesus and the tempter in our outline. Our text says, Matthew 4, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The word spirit in our translation is capitalized, indicating Holy Spirit. Now, here's my question. Why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to an arid place for the specific purpose to be tempted by the devil? 
I mean, didn't Jesus teach his disciples and us to pray? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Matthew 6, verse 12 and verse 13. Yet here, Jesus is being motivated to enter a time of seclusion which has the specific purpose of tempting him to sin. And of all things, by the prince of temptation himself, the devil. And as if this were not bad enough, the temptation comes at the end, verse 2 says, after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and nights with the result that he was hungry. (laughs) You and I would be hungry after one day of fasting, let alone 40. You say, well, what's your point? The point is that Satan's first temptation, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread, verse 3, agrees with the problem of him being very hungry. If you are the Son of God, Satan is not casting doubt on Jesus' identity. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. The if statement here, if you are the Son of God, is what we call in Greek a third-class condition, which doesn't mean much to you. But third-class conditions affirm, get this now, they affirm rather than deny what is being said. So it's best to understand the word by the word in English, since. S-I-N-C-E. Since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So Satan is not denying Jesus' deity. He is affirming it. No mere mortal can change stones into bread. Or as we will later see in Cana of Galilee, Jesus' first miracle, he changed water into wine. God can do both of these things. So the temptation goes along with the person he's talking to. In this case, the Son of God. He wouldn't tell you to change stones into bread, but he did tell Jesus that. Now, here we learn two important lessons about the devil's temptations. And this applies to us. The first is this. Temptation to sin always agree with one's capabilities. Think about that. You're going to be tempted to do something, and it's going to be within the realm of your capability. For example, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to partake of the one tree in the Garden of Eden that God had placed a don't eat sign on, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not something beyond their capabilities. That is, the tree was not surrounded by an electric fence to zap all trespassers, nor was it guarded by ferocious beasts endangering both life and limb. The animal kingdom was not cursed like that yet. Nor was it positioned geographically on some high snow-capped, forbidding, and inaccessible mountain. No! None of this 
The tree was in the middle of the garden. I want you to think about that. If it's in the middle of the garden, that means it's the same distance accessible anywhere in the garden. Right? If you're over on the east side, it's in the middle. So many feet to get to it. If you're on the west side, north side, south side, it's easily accessible. That's where this tree was. And I'm saying that this is the very nature of temptations. Satan does not come to you with a proposal that is beyond your capabilities. John tells us from where the attacks will come. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world for all that is in the world. That's the devil's playground. Don't believe me? Look at verse 9. The third temptation showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. That's the devil's playground. Three things the world offers. John tells us, 1 John 2, verse 16. The desires of the flesh. Number two, the desires of the eyes, using the eye gate to entice, and the pride in possessions, material things. Now, that being true, what would be Jesus' great desire, humanly speaking now, after 40 days of fasting. Well, the devil assumed, hmm, let me think about this. 40 days of fasting. I know. Food! Food! Aren't you hungry, Jesus? Oh, don't answer. I know you are hungry. But Jesus is out in the desert. There's no Kroger store. There's no 7-Eleven corner market. No problem, no problem. Satan's temptations are first characterized in that they always agree with one's capabilities. For lesser men, Satan would not have said, he would not have said, tell these stones to become bread. But to Jesus he can, and he does say, since you are the Son of God... Tell these stones, become bread. Absolutely. No impossibility for him who would later command the threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee. He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still! Then the wind died down and it was completely Mark 4, verse 39. Satan's temptations always complement our capabilities and appeal to our desires. When I was a kid uh, living with our family, who was living with Grandma and Grandpa, Grandpa loved to eat Limburger cheese sandwiches for lunch. In case you do not know, Limburger cheese is a particularly offensive smelling cheese imported from the old world. And my grandpa was from Belgium. It's described ably by one internet 
site that writes this. Limburger cheese undoubtedly is one of the stinkiest cheeses in the world. Limburger actually smells worse than it tastes. For many people, though, the aroma is both the beginning and the end of the acquaintance. It is a food people either love or love to hate. And that's from the, the website What's Cooking in America? The point, my folks could say to me, and I'm sure you've all done this with your kids, just, just try it. You know, what, what, one little bite, you, 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 might, you might like it. I could never be enticed. <laughs> to try a bite of Limburger cheese. The smell one. Ah. But set out a candy dish full of Hershey's chocolate kisses. Now that was a real temptation even when mom would say, no candy before supper. What are you capable of wanting? What are you capable of doing? That is where the test will come. That's where it will come. The second characteristic of Satan's temptations taught in our text is this. Satan always tempts us when we are at our weakest. Our weakest. I call him Mr. Cowardly Devil. Because that's the way he operates. The devil came to Jesus at the end of a 40-day fast. Some of you suffer from what doctors have titled low blood sugar. People with this problem who haven't eaten for some time will start getting the shakes, sometimes become disoriented, it's no laughing matter. And will definitely have to sit down till they can eat some food to restore energy. When you're weak and your legs feel like rubber and you sense that you're going to faint, maybe even a cube of Limburger cheese <laughs> might sound good, the lesser of two evils. What's the biblical remedy for when Satan attacks us? Here it is. James writes, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. What he's saying, repent of known sin. James 4, verse 7 and 8. That's the solution. Now Jesus' weakness at this point of the temptation was physical. He was hungry, likely weak from lack of food, but he resisted the devil's temptation by appealing to the word of God. Look at verse 4. It is written, this is Jesus talking, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is teaching that life consists in a a realm that is more than physical. 
There is the spiritual side of life. So, if knuckling under to Satan's remedy for hunger by submission to his suggestion to use God power to satisfy personal needs, which would support the notion that life only consists of the physical nutrition that we can acquire for the body, if that's what you're trying to suggest, Jesus would not and he could not comply. You all remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Esau, as the older brother, was entitled to the birthright from his father Isaac, making him the family's spiritual head and the leader of the tribe. Esau did not see much value in the birthright, but Jacob, his brother, prized it greatly. One day, Esau returned from the hunt. Now, Esau as you know, was a, what I call a man's man. Say, what do you mean by that? Oh, he was into bows and arrows and knives and out there in the woods. To use Ray Stevens' little thing, he took on a grizzly with a switch in the woods in the middle of the night. That was Esau. That's the kind of guy. Fearless. And so we read once when Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, uh, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore on oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Genesis 25, verse 29 through 34. Now, if you look at the context, it tells us that Jacob, as opposed to Esau, Jacob was a stay-at-home kind of guy. Okay? Esau, he's out in the woods, he's bow and arrow, knife, he's out hunting. Jacob, stay at home kind of guy. Which means that Esau was back at the family compound where Jacob was cooking his stew. Back home. Famished, he says to Jacob. Really? Really? Yeah. He couldn't last another 15 minutes to make his own lunch. You see, Esau had no inclination towards spiritual things. God's evaluation of him is found in Hebrews 12, verse 16. See to it, he writes, that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal, you can hear the incredulity in God's voice of this, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Esau did not place any value on living his life by the word of God, on accepting the responsibility of spiritual head of his family. What mattered most to him was his stomach and eating his fill. God labeled him as godless 
And he warns us not to be like him. Instead of resisting Satan, let me put it this way, he caved. He caved in. After what? A night or two in the forest. Jesus was much weaker after a 40-day fast. Yet maintaining his spiritual integrity was more important than feeding his face. When we are weak, that is when the temptations to sin will come. And it is at those times when our spiritual integrity must mean more to us than gratifying the flesh. But often we fail at this very point. I fail at this very point as well. It's very, very frustrating. That's why we need Jesus, of whom the writer of Hebrews says, For we do have a high priest who is uh, uh, who is not unable, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. In our time of need. Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16. What's that writer saying? He's saying, God is saying, I know you're weak. Jesus can sympathize with your weaknesses. Been there, done that. You think you were tempted? How'd you like to be out in the desert with the devil going toe-to-toe with him after 40 days of no eating? That brings us then to the second point of the outline, devil's lust for people to worship him. <laughs> Look at the second temptation. The temptation, uh, the second one is uh, a temptation to be presumptuous. Jesus had just thwarted the devil's appeal to the desires of the flesh in the appeal. Well, I'll take the stone, make stones into bread. By using the word of God to emphasize that life consists of more than bread. So now the devil... Notice this. He creatively adapts. Huh, since Jesus wants to quote scripture to me, I will quote scripture to him. Oh, this is just like the devil. So Jesus is ported to the highest spire of the temple from which Satan tells him, Since you are the Son of God... Again, it's one of those third-class Greek constructions. Since you are the Son of God, throw yourselves down, for it is written, and you'll find this in Psalm 91 and Deuteronomy 6, where it's written, for it is written, He, God, will command His angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, these words are, in fact, found in the Scripture. What is this? The devil is quoting scripture to Jesus. But there's a spin on it. The spin 
that the devil puts on these words is that he is advocating that Jesus create an incident requiring God to intervene, assuming wrongly that God is obligated to intervene in such cases. So, verse 7, Jesus issues this correction. It's also written, here's the correction, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, it's one thing to be walking among the high terraces of the temple and to stumble and begin to fall off the precipice to the rocks below. That's one thing. But it's quite another thing to deliberately throw oneself off the terrace and then claim God's promise of rescue. The first incident, slipping, falling, relies on faith in God's promises. The second Deliberately jumping off the temple heights and thinking, oh well, God will rescue me. That's not faith. That's presumption. It's testing the mercy of God unnecessarily because you created the problem. What about us? Do we deliberately, this is an important question, do we deliberately sin thinking, oh well, God has promised to forgive all my transgressions, which he has, right? No, that's equally presumptuous and dangerous as well because it puts into question whether our heart is truly in love with God. Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound? Ah, the more I sin, the more God's grace is poured out on me to take care of my sin. So I'll sin, get more grace. You know, that's diabolical thinking. It's in our text. That's diabolical thinking. Well, jump off the temple heights because God says he'll send his angels and they'll pick you up. And they'll protect you and they'll care for you. And we do the same thing. The third and final temptation experienced by Jesus reveals Satan's hidden intent. You'll find it in verse 8. Jesus is transported to a very high mountain where Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor with this proposal, verse 9, All this I will give you if you bow down and bow down. The word is worship, but it means bow down. If you bow down and bow down to me. Ah, the light bulb has gone on. Satan has been on an eagle trip ever since before he was expelled from heaven. His boast is recorded in Isaiah. We've read it before. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. More than any other thing, The devil desires to replace God with 
himself. He craves worship. He craves it. And by the way, he does have his worshipers. We read earlier on today in today's study that Israel, upon rejecting God, I'm reading again, Israel sacrificed to demons which are not gods, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. God said that of his people Israel. Okay, but the psalmist reveals the fuller history of this. Let me read it to you. Psalm 106, verse 37. They sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. Ah. The psalmist tells how black was their sacrifice. A black sacrifice of murder to the prince of murder. To the demons. Jesus called Satan a liar and a murderer. This is the God Satan represents and the world's religions worship at his shrines. It's extremely important that we worship only the God of the Bible, and anything less is idolatry, and it, or excuse me, anything else is idolatry, and anything less is demonic. You say, wow, you're really cutting pretty sharp. So that's it, folks. All the religions of the world, with the exception of Christianity, is demonic. They're worshiping at idols. Paul says in Corinthians, don't you know that behind every idol is a demon? Oh, how many gods the Hindu people have? What is it, over 10,000, something like that? Well, they got Jesus in there somewhere. Islam, Buddhists, Confucius, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Anagos, think of any other religion. It's all worshiping the evil one. Note that when Jesus resisted Satan, when he fought against his temptations, leaning heavily on a right understanding of the word of God, verse 11 says, Then the devil left him and angels came and attended or ministered to him. You and I have our part in the victory. We must see life as more than food on our table or clothes on our backs or money in the bank or pleasures in the meadow and strong work ethic and I have a good job and all of that good stuff. We are to trust God for our provisions. We are to avoid presumptuous, may I say, twisting of the word of God to our own ends. And we're to see to it that the God we worship is not the splendor of the world's possessions, which are passing away, says John. Worship belongs to the God of the Bible alone. Alone. Now, brethren... You have to begin right to end up right. You have to begin with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you're in there too, along about day six. Everything that we have 
is our creator behind that. He deserves the worship. No substitutes, no idols, no other gods before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I'm thankful for this temptation that uh, you allowed Jesus to go through because he, he's fighting the evil one, not, not using God power, not pulling rank, but doing the very things that you called us to do as we pray that you will lead us not into temptation, that you will deliver us from the evil one. And we have all of those means at our disposal that Jesus had. We can use the word of God. We can put spiritual things above physical. We can watch out for being presumptuous, testing God, using his own word against him. We can watch the the greed of our heart that wants us to amass possessions, possessions, possessions. The splendor of the world that is fading away, says John. These are things all within our grasp. And then on top of that all, we have the spirit of the Christ living within us if we know Christ as Savior. So that his grace and mercy are available to us for the asking. So help us to pray better, Lord, and to think before we act. And help us mostly to resist the three areas where the devil will come to us with his kingdom, the world, trying to get us to worship him. Forgive us for those times when, like Israel, we have gone to to the idols and we've made sacrifice to the idols and we've denied our God in doing so. Help us, Lord, to get a view of you that will keep us on the straight and narrow. And we bless thee for forgiving our sins, yes, but also sustaining us by your grace through your Holy Spirit. Draw us close to you and make us like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.